When are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome to Hopping Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. Today, we have a wonderful interview with James Brousseau on the philosophies and ethics of economics. It's a wonderful discussion. We had a lot of fun. But we don't have a lot of time this week, so I'm just going to go in right into my section, which is about the politics of the EU referendum. Arliss is going to have her commentary on the economics and some of the social aspects and I'm going to start that discussion by describing very briefly the British Constitution, because it's, a, it's an important piece of background to this whole debate. The first question we have to ask, of course, is what is the British Constitution? Figuring out the answer to that question is a bit like reading Thomas Nagel's What Is It Like to Be a Bat? You spend a few hours reading a dense text and cross-referencing the points he makes with other thinkers. With the British Constitution, you'll read through a few hundred legal documents and discussions, which will tell you that the British Constitution ultimately is the last 700 years of laws and also the Magna Carta. And all of that comprises the British Constitution, which, which factually speaking, can all be overturned at any point with a single bill in Parliament. The British Constitution is nothing. Just like Thomas Nagel's version of what it is like to be a bat. It's nothing, according to him. When it comes to the British Constitution, there isn't one. No court can question any decisions made by the British Parliament. Their laws stand supreme. Nothing except the act of a future Parliament may call into question any act taken by Parliament. Now, the courts can point out where there are contradictions in the law, but there's nothing really constitutional about the structure of the UK government, nor does the monarch have any actual power, as a single vote in Parliament could depose the monarchy forever. So, There's no constitution. There's no supreme law of the land which keeps the government in check and establishes its power. There is only the government. There is only the government and its unchecked, unquestioned power. Most countries have a government. The United Kingdom is a government which has a country. They call themselves a constitutional monarchy because it suits them. Just like North Korea calls itself a democratic republic. It's a fiction that the government would like others to believe. Their government is not based on laws, really, but tradition, backroom deals, winks and nods, and the assumption that the government will never use the rather extreme powers that it has because that contravenes convention. Convention and precedent and handshake. That's what people mean when they say the words British Constitution. That's why there's this entire house of unelected lords appointed to positions of power by parliament. Imagine this. A politician is about to lose an election. His internal polling tells him he can't win. So he announces he's not running for re-election, and his buddies in Parliament give him a lordship. For the rest of his life, he gets to stay a voting politician. And people, the voters, can never, ever get rid of him. Sometimes, parliamentarians who lose elections, whose constituents try and kick them out, are still granted lordships after being diselected by the people. In addition to that, you have businessmen who make extreme public statements 
threatening to pull their businesses out of a country or county or region if a certain policy passes and stirring up all sorts of fear. And they get granted lordships by the political party that they carried water for. This is the case of Michelle Moan, so, sorry, Baroness Moan, who supported the Conservative Party line during the independence referendum and is now a permanent member of parliament as a lady of the House of Lords. It's people living under that system, which complained that the European Union, supervised by the European Council and the European Parliament, is run by unelected bureaucrats. The European Parliament is directly elected by the people, and the European Council is essentially a conclave of the elected heads of state of European governments. So you have one that is a group of elected leaders, or their chosen representatives, and you have another, which is a democratically elected body. And those groups appoint people to various cabinet and other positions within the government, just like any other government. Those are not lifetime appointments. The only lifetime appointments that govern anyone in the English-speaking world would be those sort of nobility titles in the UK and the US Supreme Court. Nowhere else in the English-speaking world do you have some kind of governmental lifetime appointment, except for something like I think there are certain places where you have poet laureates or some other cultural position where people can gain those appointments. But it doesn't happen in anything with, with, with power. And so when people who criticize the European Union talk about the European Union, they say, well, you have the European Council, the Council of Europe and the European Parliament. And these are all these unelected groups. And, and you, you, do you know who the, who the president of which of them is? You have three different presidents. There's all this nonsense. And when they talk about presidents... A lot of times they're talking about something like a president pro tempore, which is in a governmental sense, they're a speaker of a certain kind of house. They don't have the power of an actual president. They're just in charge of that particular body and, you know, helping decide rules and banging gavels and calling things to order. There's only one actual president of the European Union. As for the Council of Europe, it has nothing really to do with the European Union, no matter how many times the Leave campaign says so. The Council of Europe is a diplomatic body distinctive of and separate from the European Union. Russia is a member of the Council of Europe. All those European countries that aren't in the EU are members of the Council of Europe. It's, it's a democratic body, kind of like the Organization of American States. The OAS is a diplomatic body with no power. Same thing with the Council of Europe, but they talk about it a lot because it makes things look more confusing. So only the European Council, which is made up of elected representatives, the heads of state of various governments, and the European Parliament, which is made up of people directly elected by the people to serve a constituency, have anything to do with the EU. But the Leave campaign tends to lie, lie, lie about that. And as I'm saying this, I do want to make a distinction between the UK Leave campaign in the UK and the Leave campaign in Scotland. So let's talk about those campaigns directly now. In England, you have the right-wing Leave campaign, and you don't really have much of a left-wing Leave campaign. And the right-wing Leave campaign is arguing essentially immigrants, immigrants, Immigrants are terrible. They're coming for us. They're coming for everything. They're going to destroy our way of life. Immigrants are awful. Keep away the scary brown people. That is the basis of the right-wing leave campaign. That and a bunch of lies about how the EU actually works because it is extremely complicated. In fact, to understand 
how complex the European Union is. Because the European Union is not like the United States where there's an authoritarian central government that determines everything. The European Union has to make different agreements with different societies because different countries need different things. So you have Norway, for example, that's not an EU member but still is a member of all these other things including the Schengen Zone, which is a free travel area. They're using that complexity to scare people. The right wing says, and by the way, all this translates to immigrants stealing your job and ISIS people coming to your country to kill your children and all these other terrible lies. You don't really have a a left wing leave campaign that matters all that much in England. It's very weak and very small. In Northern Ireland, you have a campaign that is basically circling around. Let's please not wreck the peace process because of everything that Arliss talked about last week. And in Scotland, you have a different debate altogether because Scotland is a different country. And I'm going to focus specifically on what a rational EU campaign referendum discussion would would look like because that's the one you have in Scotland. The Leave campaign in Scotland, to be fair to them, is entirely about saying this is about Scottish sovereignty and about the decisions we make and also about not cooperating with the way that the EU is attacking Greece We don't have any faith that we can reform the EU. By the way, we love immigrants. The international responsibilities dealing with with refugees have nothing to do with the EU. And and I'm going to have a quote here by uh, Jim Sillers. Economic immigration is a toxic subject, yet must be addressed because it's an issue in the EU referendum. I brush aside the Cameron claim that his policy on curbing benefits is important in reducing the numbers who come to the UK from other EU states. It's a shameful claim that we should operate an apartheid social security policy that treats one person differently from another because of national origin. Research has shown that the vast majority of people come here not for benefits, but for work, and the vast majority get work. Scotland is having a different debate. It's having a completely different discussion. And yet, because of the racists in a separate country, that discussion is being completely drowned out by people like Farage, and also by that sort of nascent far right that still exists in Scotland. The, the Britain first folks have smaller groups in Scotland, and they're small voices, but they're arrogant and loud and dangerous, and they beat up yesers during the independence campaign. There were people, I remember outside of a, a concert for Yes, where a bunch of Scottish bands were playing, like Frightened Rabbit and a few others, an old man got beaten up by thugs who were who walked away singing rule Britannia. I watched people get headbutted in videos that were, that were given to me. And then people walked away singing rule Britannia, those kinds of thugs, the right wing are the ones who went after Joe Cox. The result of all of this is that if you look at simply the facts and the politics, I'm not convinced by Jim Siller's argument. I'm not convinced that there is any uh, positive benefit for Scotland leaving the EU. I think an independent Scotland within the EU would have a much stronger voice and would be able to negotiate the same kind of relationship that every other country has been able to negotiate with the EU. Everyone who wants to participate in the EU at some point has been able to have a specialized agreement that suits their needs. There's no reason that Scotland would be any different. And the other aspect of, of this is the politics of this have really just illustrated how much the United Kingdom is in danger of breaking up. The debates going on in different parts of the country are debates happening in different countries. And with the hatred and right-wing reactionary nonsense that Scots want nothing to do with that is being spun up in England, 
I have to think that this referendum is just further eroding the glue that holds the United Kingdom together. Coming up, Arliss is going to talk more about the economic and social aspects of the EU referendum here on Hopping Map. down the economics of Brexit this week until I discovered that the Brexit referendum isn't really about economics. Oh, don't get me wrong. If Leave wins, it's going to have an enormous economic impact, almost all of it bad. The middle class, working poor and truly poor, will be even more poor and even less secure due to deep cuts to the social safety net programs. The elites will continue to be powerful, or at least, you know, very wealthy. So chagrined they may be, but they'll be drowning their troubles in the champagne and caviar they can still easily afford to import. Some will leave whatever manages to remain of the UK, and some will stay. The anti-immigration fascist UKIP party and their leader, Nigel Farage, will boom into power. The border with Ireland will close, and the Irish Republicans have already said what they plan to do as a direct result of that, so the UK will be back in a shooting war in its own backyard. Europe will do business with the UK, but on far less favorable terms than currently exist as a matter of policy, because the EU must shore up its own union. All of the laws, worker protections, environmental protections, joint medical research projects, farm subsidies, and the peace subsidies for Northern Ireland, which are part of the EU, will all fall away. Some will be reborn in London, but those new laws and any subsidies which survive will all be policy passed by the right and the far right. This goes for trade policy, too. So you thought TTIP was bad? I was going to give you that in depth and in detail, but I'm not. Because what I learned, with the help of one of our listeners, in fact, was that none of these things really matter in the Brexit campaign. People beyond the London bubble aren't being heard. They haven't been heard for a very long time. They're losing ground. They don't just think in terms of scarcity. They are surrounded and consumed by it. They are tired of being lied to. They are tired of being tired. When they hear politicians in whom they have no trust and experts in whom they have no trust tell them things are going to get worse, they think, how? I'm already as low as I can go. They are wrong. But at this point, they don't even care about that. What they care about is being heard on the 23rd of June. They will be heard. On 23 June, their anger and exhaustion and fear will be heard. And however the Brexit vote comes out, the echo of their voices will reverberate in London and Brussels and Washington, D.C. To quote Lisa McKenzie in The Guardian, the referendum has opened up a chasm of inequality in the U.K., and the monsters of a deeply divided and unfair society are crawling out. 
Personally, I'm watching the pain and machinations of Brexit especially closely for three reasons. The first is as an MMT wonk. Brexit isn't really about the EU. It's primarily about austerity and what happens when a government with a sovereign floating fiat currency prioritizes pixels and imaginary balance sheets over people and lives, just like we're doing here in the United States. I have often covered the depth and breadth of austerity and why, in nations with a sovereign currency and debt in said currency, it is a voluntary state. I even wrote a book about it, all of which goes to say that I won't dive into the damage done by the British government to its citizens by austerity, except to say that the damage came from London, not Brussels, and you will be stuck with London after Brexit, no matter what the vote turns out to be, unless, of course, you're Scotland, and then maybe not so much. Oh, and the amount of money, which is considerably less than the amount given on the side of UKIP's so-called battle bus, is something the British fiat currency can easily, transparently afford. They just don't choose to make it easy. And that's a choice. The second reason I'm following Brexit is as a pragmatist, as someone who works hard to live in a fact-based reality. When I hear the Brexit Leave campaign telling people that they should ignore the warnings and studies by financial economics and human rights experts, this is what I hear. I hear the Fed in the office of the Comptroller of the Currency blowing off the expert warnings they received years in advance of the mortgage crisis. I hear everyone blowing off the MMT economists who were among the cadre of experts who predicted the global financial crisis. I hear everyone blowing off the economists who warned that the Eurozone and the wrecking of sovereign currencies would lay waste to the foundation of Europe and would create a race to the bottom. And beyond all of that, I hear evolution is a hoax, as well as its corollary, the world was created in seven days. I hear that autism is created by vaccines. I hear that being LGBTQ is a choice. I hear that climate change is a hoax. I hear that the Holocaust was a hoax. There are truths in this world for which there is a preponderance of evidence, things which are well studied and understood, things which curious people will devote their lives in order to wring from the mass of evidence the core of truth. These curious, dedicated, usually unsung people are called experts. It is a cardinal characteristic of experts that they must build a so-called Chinese wall between their field of endeavor and the politics which swirl around them. Yes, sometimes they fail. Yes, sometimes evidence is misunderstood. But guess what? There's a way to tell when experts are likely right. And it's when they agree, and when that agreement is in large numbers. In an astonishing show of rare agreement, economists the world over, economists who have no skin in the Brexit game, virtually all agree that Brexit will leave the UK poorer, and that this weight will fall disproportionately on those who can least afford it. People in the UK are tired of being lied to. I hear that, and it's no small wonder, because like us, you have been lied to a lot. But here's a sure and absolutely unwavering way to tell when you're definitely being lied to. When politicians tell you to ignore the experts, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, the elephant in the room, the nose on your face. When a politician, any politician, is telling you to ignore the experts, they are usually doing that for a good reason, and that reason usually isn't good for you. If it was, they wouldn't be worrying about experts. Ignoring the experts doesn't change the facts, but it does do one thing. It diminishes truth. As a society, when we turn our backs on truth, be it out of pique or frustration or exhaustion, 
We aren't just turning away from reality. We are turning towards something. That something is the lesser, smaller, meaner world fed to us by those who are themselves fed only by our anger and pain. Science is precious. It is fragile. It is up to us to protect it. All of us. When we give time, when we give energy, when we offer up research and those who do it on the pyre of politics, it is we who burn every single time. The third reason I'm drawn to Brexit watching is as a human being, because just like the current election cycle in the U.S., reasonable, respectful Brexit debate has been almost entirely overmatched by the currency of hate. So much so that on Thursday, a man screaming Britain first shot and repeatedly stabbed British MP Joe Cox. She died on the pavement in the city where she was born and in the constituency she served. I'm going to tell you a bit about her so you can understand just how insidious the rhetoric of hate has become. Joe Cox would have turned 42 this week on the day before the referendum. She had a husband, Brandon, and two very young children. She lived on a houseboat. Joe came from a working-class background. Her father was a factory worker and her mother was a school secretary. Joe did well enough in school that she ended up at Cambridge. But going to school with the scions of England was difficult for her. She apparently said it took her most of her 20s to recover from Cambridge. Out of college, Joe worked for an MP and then for a member of the EU's governing body. Next, she went to work for Oxfam, and during her seven years there, she traveled to some of the most dangerous, unstable, war-ravaged places in the world, places where peace had not yet come, and Joe worked to improve the lives of survivors while she was risking her own life. Later, Joe worked for Save the Children, as well as an international project to reduce maternal mortality. Joe was an advisor to the Freedom Fund and to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. She chaired the Women's Labor Network. She had three favorite charities, Hope Not Hate, which seeks to provide a positive antidote to extremism, White Helmets, which has rescued more than 40,000 people from beneath rubble in areas being bombed in Syria, and the Royal Voluntary Service which works to combat loneliness among the elderly. She was elected to the House of Commons, proudly representing the place where she was born in 2015. And in addition to having a laser focus on helping the less advantaged and marginalized in the UK, she took on as her special project the plight of Syrian refugees, believing that the UK should open its doors to many more. Jo supported the Remain campaign. She believed that to paraphrase what she said in her maiden speech in Parliament, there is more which unites us than divides us. Joe believed in the goodness of people, and she believed that all could rise. And she died for it. It doesn't matter if the assassin of Joe Cox, or the Orlando killer, or the Oklahoma City killer, was mentally balanced or not. The individual status of these murderers matters not. What does matter is that they were one and all being bathed in a sea of hate and the tide. Well, the current of hate, it swept them away. On the very day Joe Cox died, one of the leaders of the Leave campaign revealed the first in a series of new posters the campaign planned to use during the final week leading up to the vote. The poster shows a massive group of Syrian men walking toward a border fence. The words breaking point are emblazoned across the poster. The implication is entirely clear. These men are coming here, they're coming to take your job, they're coming for you. The reality is that the men were at a border crossing in Eastern Europe, and the open migration policy of the EU doesn't apply to them. What does apply to them is the UN 1951 Convention relating to the status of refugees. What does apply to them is this, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. 
Throughout the Brexit campaign, the Remain camp has been trying to use facts, reports, and logic to reach voters, while the Leave camp has been talking directly to the fear and anger which was already resident in the hearts of so many. And let me be very, very clear. This fear and anger, it's there with good cause. The British people have been failed by their government many times, and with a coldness and disdain which simply cannot be forgiven. The citizens of the UK are clutched in the ever-tightening claws of crises which include the ongoing loss of manufacturing jobs, the extreme housing shortage, the even more extreme affordable housing shortage, cutbacks in the NHS, crumbling infrastructure, and on and on. Immigration, both from the EU and beyond, has exacerbated all of these crises, not because immigration cannot ultimately be an economic plus for the economy, but because the government has turned a blind eye toward transitional programs and services. Appropriate, targeted government spending, the exercise of the fiscal might of a sovereign currency, could put all of this, or virtually all of this, to rest. Instead, it has been implemented with an unfeeling, arrogant, corrupt group of elites who have shoved the dry bones of austerity down the throats of a starving public. So people have turned away, and they have turned toward the only other voice in the room. And that voice, that hate-filled, bigoted, fascist, Farage Trump voice, is screaming loud and long, and with no small amount of jeering jingo, cats got the cream satisfaction. These leaders and others like them froth the words like treason, unpatriotic, and criminal, leaving behind all possibility of civil discourse and conjuring real violence at a Planned Parenthood Center in Colorado, at a church in South Carolina, at a congresswoman's speech in Arizona. The anti-immigration, Islamophobic themes sprouted by Farage and Trump are the mirror reflections of the rhetoric spat out by ISIL themselves as angry, unheard people flock to the megaphone of the Leave and Trump campaigns, they care not that they are voting against their own self-interest, against their own families and jobs, against simple humanity. The result really isn't the point of their vote. Jonathan Friedland had this to say in The Guardian. If you inject enough poison into the political bloodstream, eventually somebody will get sick. And later, none of us is an island. We take our cues from the signals around us. I don't really need to work too hard to point out what happens when we allow ourselves to be led by fear and engulfed by anger. When societies do that, we get the Inquisition, the Salem Witch Trials, the rise of the KKK, Joe McCarthy and the House Un-American Activities Committee. We get ISIL. We get Orlando. We get the assassination of Joe Cox. People are angry and anger is valid. Destruction is not... Rending and tearing the fabric of civilization, well, it's the easy way out, but it's almost never the one that's going to get you where you want to go. Change is work. It's hard work. It's a life's work. Ask Brendan Cox. On the day after his wife's murder, he released a statement, and among many other things, he says that he intends to continue with a project that aims to build an international alliance to combat, quote, the dangerous breeding ground of economic insecurity on which the populist right has fed across European politics. The real work of change comes not from banging and crashing around on the outside. The actual work of change almost always comes from the inside, and it usually takes years, years of volunteering time, years of supporting candidates or becoming one yourself. Years of working up through the system, years of gathering allies, years of refining your argument, years of learning to understand the other side of the argument, years of learning to work with all of the stakeholders. 
The final thing I'll say about Brexit is that it matters who is standing beside you and what is in their hearts. Is building a future based upon hate the future you really want? When people from the outside look in and they call your side bigoted, they may very well be missing the point you are trying to make, but are you standing beside actual bigots? Are you magnifying their voice? Can your cry for housing and jobs and fairness be heard above their din of hate? In casting a vote for Leave and Farage, or in the U.S. for Trump, you will, without question, be endorsing all that they spew out into the world. Is that who you are? To quote The Guardian in their editorial on the death of Joe Cox, the slide from civilization to barbarism is shorter than we might like to imagine. And, you know, what's really kind of surprising to me is that you have four different countries in the UK making this decision at once. You have Northern Ireland that we talked about last week, whose main concern is the peace process. You have Scotland and their Leave Remain campaign has been much different than the one in, the, in, the, in England and Wales. And I talked about this in my section where you have people like Jim Sillers being the main voice for the Scottish Leave group. And then you have this English campaign where it's Farage, where it's UKIP, where you have all those right-wing voices. And it's really becoming even more clear to me that the dividing lines between these countries, where if you look at, at Scotland, people were shocked that the debate was so vociferous that you ended up with that. The Scottish debate, which is separate and operates in a separate geographical and regional and conversational space has said, you know, we need to talk about economic migration, even though it's toxic. And what we, the Leave campaign, and this is Jim Siller said about it, is economic migrants don't come here for benefits. They come here for jobs and they get jobs. It's a good thing for our country. And we ought to celebrate that. For the folks in Scotland, it, the Leave campaign there is all about whether or not they want to be a part of what is happening to Greece, whether or not they want to waste a lot of effort, enervating effort, as they argue, fighting to reform a system that they disagree with fundamentally. And so it's very, it throws the divisions within the United Kingdom into really sharp relief that Scotland really is at this point, a different country with a different debate, a different conversation that exists in a different space. And that it shows just how much these folks who are on the barrage side are going to lose if they get what they want, because they're going to go from Great Britain to Little England. If they win the Leave referendum, you're going to see violence in Northern Ireland. You're going to see a final breakup, I would argue, of the British Union. And I dealt with those politics to be as fair with it in, in, in my section. But the vast majority of the people in England who are making this decision are being swept up, it looks like, in this Farage right-wing thing. And you have in the personage of Boris Johnson, a person who is just like the American Republicans who are happy to go on with fascism and racism if it means that maybe they'll get to stand on the coattails and gain some of the electoral fervor. Exactly. And what astounds me about the Tories who are going along with this is one of the first people to argue for a United States of Europe was Winston Churchill, the Ronald Reagan of British politics. Right. The one the Tories look back to. He was the one who said, if we want peace in Europe, we need a United States of Europe. We need to never have a war like this again. And I don't agree with Churchill on a lot, but this is the Tories turning their back on their own values. 
And I've seen them do that again and again and again, just like the Republicans. I mean, I would never have agreed with the Tories on much. But what you can say about the Republicans in the United States who are the never Trump folks who are going to go vote for libertarians and the ones who are going to vote for Hillary Clinton because they want to stop Trump is that at least they believe in the things they say. What I think this debate has revealed in in England especially is the absolute baselessness of conservative positions for those politicians who care about being elected more than they care about any of the values they choose to ascribe to, especially with David Cameron, who chose to allow the referendum in the first place. That's it shows that these people don't actually care about the things they say they believe. Well, I think the degree of emotion, both here and in the UK, in our respective elections, has become so empowered Mm -hmm. that it is at the cost of all else. And that's why I want to talk about, you know, who's standing with you? Are you standing with people like Joe Cox, who are working for a better world? Or are you standing with someone like Nigel Farage or Donald Trump? And is that who you want to be? Because if you are standing next to them, even though your point may be different, that's not what people are going to see or hear. This listener that I had this long Twitter conversation with last week, and it was really enlightening because today I absolutely would have spoken very differently. I absolutely would have been, you know, all about the economics. But this person is clearly very emotionally invested and with good reason. I mean, that's the thing that's so frustrating. These folks that are emotionally swept into the Leave campaign, it is with good reason. The Cameron government, the Tories... The labor, frankly, you know, by being bad at their job, they bought this. They brought this on. This is their fault. And the thing about it is change comes when you work from the inside. It is not a revolution. It is a process from the inside. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've just gone through that with the, in fact, we still are going through that because Bernie Sanders hasn't conceded yet. But the fact is change comes from the inside and you have to work and you have to work at it for a long time. And I hope what the Sanders voters take away from this process is that they need to get involved and stay involved and that their voices will be heard if they do. I'm glad you drew that kind of Bernie Sanders comparison because I think that's accurate. If you look at the folks in Scotland, especially, and on the left in Britain who are part of the sort of left wing leaning leave folks, it's all about we don't want to cooperate with a system that we see as fundamentally destructive. And as a result, there are a lot of similarities there. There is a clear rationale behind it. There's emotion for very good reason behind it. And I think that's a very good way to understand the differences. Coming up on Hopping Mad, we have a fabulous interview with Dr. James Brousseau. He is talking to us about the philosophy and ethics of inequality and really bringing a very different voice to that subject here on Hopping Mad.
Welcome back to Hopping Mad. We talk a lot about economic facts here, but today we have a unique opportunity to talk about the ethics, philosophy, and morality of economics. And in order to have that conversation, we're here with Professor James Brousseau, who works for Pace University and helped create the Wealth Inequality Workshop. Uh, James, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Looking forward to being here. Tell us about the, the Wealth Inequality Workshop. What's, what are you trying to accomplish with, with this documentary and website you've created? Sure. This is a project that we've put together with Pace University and uh, some contribution from one of the uh, publishers of one of my books, Flat World Knowledge. Uh, what we're trying to do is um, take a look at the issue of wealth inequality in a language and on a level which is a little bit different than uh, is commonly approached. So instead of talking in economic terms, that is in terms of how we can maximize wealth for individuals, or in political terms, say in terms of Democrats versus Republicans or some or something similar. Uh, instead, we're trying to talk in uh, philosophical and ethical terms with the idea uh, that we can perhaps shake up the way uh, people think about and approach this issue, uh, lend people an opportunity to create a fresh perspective, and perhaps find ways of talking in common with others with whom they might find themselves opposed if they were speaking on the economic level or the political level. Um, so the goal then overall is a kind of a, a public service documentary that we've put out there for anybody to look at and talk about. Uh, and the hope is, again, that in this sort of election season and in general, this is an issue that's going to be important in our society, uh, the hope is that people will be able to find new ways to interact and talk about this this issue. Uh, finally, I'll just add quickly that our, our documentary is not... Uh, um, we do not attempt to, to advocate one side or the other. Um, instead, what we're trying to do is explore just different ways of talking about uh, wealth and equality in, as I say, philosophical and ethical terms. Okay. Um, you balance, in, in the documentary, you balance equality versus freedom. It seems to be the main sorts of, of forces that are trading off in the way that you look at uh, wealth and equality uh, from that philosophical perspective um, and, and what's really interesting is you set the framework with let's just imagine pure equality which is easy to imagine according to the documentary where everybody lives in similar kind of apartment and everybody gets a parcel of goods every week that has equal amounts of, of wine and chocolate and luxuries and food and all that other stuff and you talk about how that's in inherently unequal it's not sustainable it falls apart uh, would you explain that a little bit? Sure, happy to. Um, I, I will just say quickly as, as an introduction, um, I think that it's, it's right. Uh, that the, the two ways traditionally within the philosophical and ethical tradition that we've talked about wealth and equality are from the perspective of equality and from the perspective of freedom. Um, and it's certainly also true that there, that there is a, a back and forth there and there's a conflict there. But it's also true, uh, and this is a point that we tried to draw out in the documentary, that most people, when they talk about wealth and equality, talk about it either within one side or within the other. That is, they start out within the philosophy and ethics of equality or within the philosophy and ethics of freedom. And debates about wealth and equality, whether we should have it, how much we should have, and so on, go on within both of those distinct value systems. And then what happens sometimes is that when people try to engage publicly on this issue, because some people are coming from the perspective of freedom and other people are coming from the perspective of the value of equality, 
uh, it becomes impossible for them to to interact. They don't connect. And so that's why sometimes these debates on wealth inequality, it sounds like people are just talking past each other or even shouting past each other. Um, and it's because frequently, when you look carefully, they're coming from one or the other perspective. So in, in any case, that that's a broad statement about the relation between the value of equality and the value of freedom as a way of approaching this and issue. It, and if um, I could, if I could agree sure. with you there, that's that's a basic definition problem that philosophers try to work out. If people are talking past each other, they haven't defined their terms, they haven't agreed to what they're talking about beforehand, and so they end up talking about two completely different things when it comes to the economy. And I just remembered one of the questions I wanted to ask first. Actually, there you so that we can we can help define our terms. Is uh, let's define wealth. What specifically do we mean when we talk about wealth? Do we, do we mean income? Do we mean money? Or do we mean ownership of productive property? Right. An excellent question. I think that uh, on this front, we were trying to use a definition of wealth, which is the, the simply the most intuitive, and that would be the accumulation of money and personal property. That's typically when philosophers talk about these issues. We typically think of wealth in terms of simply money and personal property added up, as opposed to, of course, you can have a different, a distinct debate about income inequality versus wealth inequality. Um, but we tend to wrap those two together um, as simply the accumulation of property and money that one has and how they have that and to what extent they're justified in having it and so on. So that's wealth for us. Do you think that there's a way to, I know that, that the intimidative, the, uh, sorry, the in, intuitive definition of wealth is the one that's, it's the one we always mean when we say wealth, when we talk about wealthy people. We don't mean owning a corporation, we mean they have a big house. Uh, but do you think that might be a distraction at, at some point? Do you think that when we start dealing with these issues at some point, we might need to start talking about, say, the ownership of something that produces something, like owning a company or owning, well, even stock that pays dividends or owning, owning something that is productive, what Marxists might call the means of production? Right. I think, and I think that, that that's a very good point. And I think that those kinds of issues, <clears throat> excuse me, they tend to um, erupt more on the, on the freedom side. And let me explain very, very quickly how. Um, when people talk about uh, wealth inequality, starting from the ideal of freedom, uh, they tend to, well, they don't tend to, they do want to say that the highest value, what we want to do above all, is not to coerce others. So if that's the first step, uh, then we can take a second step and we could talk perhaps, um, if we have time, we could come back later and talk about a famous thought experiment called the Will Chamberlain experiment. But let, let's skip that now uh, and say that freedom is going to allow people to accumulate um, as much money as they like, right? If that, that's a basic definition of freedom, first. And then second, uh, attempts to redistribute that accumulated wealth uh, would be seen as scenes of, of coercion. Um, that is, be subtractions from freedom. So um, an ethics that begins from the value of freedom tends to start from the idea that, A, people can have as much wealth as they like, and B, it's wrong to try to redistribute that wealth. So then you move to the next step, you say, okay, if this is our situation, uh, is there any way within an ethics that values individual freedom, is there any way that we can limit or that we can criticize wealth inequality? And in fact, coming back to your question, I, I think it runs just along those lines. Uh, when you think uh, not about the amount of wealth people have, but to a certain extent the kind of wealth they have, um, there are very different kinds of wealth in the world, as, as you understand perfectly. And some of that wealth does, in fact, limit 
individual freedom. Uh, you can see this, for example, I lived in um, Mexico City for about 10 years. Uh, you see there that on the one hand, um, people have tremendous wealth. I can, I can just tell you a, a, a little quick sort of anecdote story. Um, and one of the things that's wonderful about Mexico, uh, I was involved in a group when I was down there, and we were uh, bought some buildings to redevelop them, right? And so we'd buy the, the old brick building and do a, what is this called, a gut renovation. And, of course, when you're doing things like that, uh, there are always building inspectors who come around, and they're always going to find a problem. Now, where I live here in New York City, uh, those building inspectors, they find problems and work stops for a month and there's like a bureaucracy, et cetera. In Mexico, those problems are handled very simply. The building inspector gives you a piece of paper which tells you what is wrong with your building. You take a 500 peso note, which is about 50 bucks, fold that into the paper and hand it back. And the building inspector tells you that he is going to go for lunch and he never comes back. So. You are really free in Mexico as, I'm not an architect, but I was working with some people who were architects, to build and do what you like. Um, and that's one of the reasons why there's such, so much of the uh, great contemporary architecture uh, is either produced by Mexicans or inspired by Mexicans. I'm thinking of uh, Baragón, La Garota, and others. Um, it's because there's essentially no building codes. You can buy your way out of whatever rule there is. Uh, and if you go down to Mexico City, you see some of the most tremendous and wonderful buildings. Um, so that's on the one hand, Mexico is a place where you have tremendous freedom, and you see all of the advantages of that freedom. But on the other hand, uh, because wealth has become so concentrated in the hands of very few people, um, 95% of the population, uh, they have, there's no bridge, there's no way that they can participate in this kind of reality, right? They don't have the money to pay these bribes, and they don't have any way to get up into the economic level where they can do those things. So in this case, in the case of Mexico, what you see is the kind of wealth that people have accumulated through freedom and as an expression of freedom, which, again, you don't have to be for that, but if you start from freedom, you are for it. Uh, as an expression of freedom, that same freedom turns back and destroys itself. Um, and, and, and that's one of the, that's the, the kind of debate and the kind of discussion you have if you approach wealth and equality from the side of freedom. The, the questions you ask are, well, how, how is it that freedom can be expressed? And in what ways can freedom specifically, can we trace the ways in which freedom uh, turns back and destroys itself? Kind of like one of the examples we use in the documentary, we talk about uh, cigarette smoking. It's one of those things where mm -hmm. uh, cigarette smoking destroys itself, right? You smoke two, pet, two cigarettes today, four tomorrow, and so on, until finally you rot out your own lungs. And it's the desire to smoke cigarettes, which has destroyed your ability to smoke cigarettes. Well, freedom can be like that, too. Freedom can, can overspin itself, can just turn back and destroy itself. Um, and so then you can fit that into the wealth and equality quality discussion by saying uh, where freedom is failing is where it is causing wealth and equality as opposing as opposed to allowing individuals to express in very concrete terms the kind of building an architect to build the kind of building he or she would like to build. So that's kind of a long-winded answer, but that would be the way you would talk about the difference between wealth or kinds of wealth within this this structure. So what you're saying is that Someone who is starting from a freedom perspective is not necessarily an opponent of equality. They simply are coming from a freedom perspective. In other words, they're seeing the world through that set of lenses. They are, a, right, good question. They, they are an opponent of inequality if and only if and only because it limits freedom. So if wealth and equality does not limit freedom, they are not against it. 
um, no matter how great the inequality is. And then if you move that over to the economic side, that would be, that's the philosophical way of saying economically that well, what you want is something like freedom of opportunity, right? Or maximized right. opportunity as opposed to maximized wealth inequality. Um, so that would be the, 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 the philosophical answer to that quick question. What aspect of all of this is the most surprising or most difficult for your students to take on board? I, I think that the, I think that where where they tend to get caught up is in that is in that notion that there really are two. Well, let, let's put it this way: there are actually three different levels of discussion. Um, there is the discussion where you talk within the notion of equality itself, and you say, "Well, does equality work?" And in fact, it, it doesn't work uh, theoretically, at least as a as a as a value in its pure form. I don't think it can work. Um, Maybe I can just quickly run through that. Refers back to the question Will asked just a second ago. Sure. Um, so I can I can just I can just quickly say that the, the, the way that works in the documentary is you, you can't imagine pure equality, uh, a situation where everyone lives in the same apartment and gets the same bundle of goods every week and so on. Uh, now, what's going to happen is let's say you and I live next to each other in this in this apartment building. We have the same apartment and so on. There's only one difference between you and I. Uh, you are a big chocolate lover, and I am a big wine drinker. Uh, and each week we get in our little basket of goods, uh, we get a little bit of chocolate and a little bit of wine. Well, it's not going to be long before you and I decide, you know what, we're going we're gonna to trade off, aren't we? I will give you my chocolate, you give me your wine. Uh, in that way, and here's sort of the, the curious point, then in that way, uh, we, you and I are both better off than we were before, even though no one has gone backward, right? No one has lost um, so this is called, this is a, a kind of a curious uh, economic reality that I'm sure you're familiar with, the uh, Pareto uh, efficiency. Uh, and so you have a situation in which even though no one has gone backwards, in some sense equality has been preserved, it's also true that equality is ruined because you and I are better off than everyone else. We're happier than everyone else. And um, so, 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 so if that's right and we still want to enforce equality, then we need to do one of two things. We need to say either A, we can no longer allow people to be different. That is, everyone has to have not only the exact same goods and services, but they have to have the exact same tastes, the exact same desires. Or, on the other hand, if we're going to let people be diverse and be different, then we're going to have to forbid or prohibit free exchange. Either way, whether we decide we're not going to let people be diverse or we're not going to let people have free exchange, either way, we're going to need enforcers. And as soon as you have enforcers, then equality is dead because you have people telling you what you can do. You have people who give orders and people who receive them. Um, so if you think about oh, the world as a place where you have diverse individuals, and you take that as the premise, in that kind of world, equality can't be sustained. It doesn't make sense. So you need to find different theories or different ways of expressing or um, trying to be, be true to the ideal of equality, which is not this direct way, right? Um, so, and then from there you go in the workshop that we talk about, we talk about uh, John Rawls's response to this problem, as well as the utilitarian response, which are in essence two different ways of um, trying to work on equality, even while we accept that inequality is necessary. So in any case, and so then going back to your question, the question that started was, well, what's most difficult for the students? What's most difficult for the students, I find, uh, is understanding that that's one debate, that equality debate on one side. And then there's also the freedom debate on the other. And then there's this third debate, which is, are you a freedom person or an equality person? And so it becomes very difficult to keep all these things, all these things straightened out. Um, 
in the in the heads of in, the, in, in my head also, in fact, from time to time, but in the heads of students, this idea that you're talking about one subject and there are three completely different debates um, and languages to discuss it. Well, and I think as as you were giving the wine and chocolate example, I'm thinking, yeah, but the wine. I'm from Sonoma County, so I'm thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, but the wine is more valuable than the chocolate in terms of actual, you know, value on the market. Yet, I would still make that trade if I was in your example because I prefer the chocolate to the wine. So I have given up some market value, but I'm still happier. I have still moved forward. So, I mean, it's even the the complexity of these um, trade-offs is very, very much more layered than than I think the political discourse Right, and that gets back to your. It gets right exactly. It gets right back to your earlier, to your the earlier point about the difficulty of defining wealth and so on. So right, so that too is a right. We you, we fall off the bus of our discussion when we get lost in the question of what actually has value in and of itself. Um, so and, yes, and to add to complicate that that pure equality model even further, if you have that thing where everybody's getting the same bundle of goods, there are people with specialized diets who, if they don't get a certain diet, they might die. There are people with diabetes. There are people with, uh, with disabilities. There are people who are allergic to certain foodstuffs. So if one of those foodstuffs ends up in their, in their bundle, they're in trouble. There are people who can't tolerate certain uh, preservatives or who are allergic to certain pesticides. There are all these issues that, that affect people. So at a pure equality model, there are people who are still losing. Because yeah. they don't have the capacity to make the choices that would put them not better than anyone else, but on the same level as everyone else. So it, it, the, the pure quality model just totally falls apart. Um, and, and so what it, you say, which I think is interesting, is so what ethics become is how do we manage inequality ethically? Right, or, or how do we manage inequality within a framework of equality? That's the... That's yeah. the trick. Is to say, well, how can we how can we have not inequality as against equality, but rather the idea is that inequality has to serve the idea of equality, um, and, and, and so and so that's the issue, or, and so that's the catch. How can inequality serve equality? And we need that again because we can't have straight up equality. And then one of those responses that I think this might be sort of the mainstream American philosophical response uh, is offered by uh, John Rawls in his what he calls his difference principle. And the difference principle is the following. He says, look, we will allow people to get to accumulate greater wealth or welfare or happiness, whatever you want to call it, uh, than others uh, on the following condition. If, let's say, my accumulation of an extra amount of wealth actually benefits those members of society who are poorest, or as he calls them, the least advantaged, that is... Uh, we're allowed to become wealthier than others as long as no one gets left behind. Um, and then, kind of an, a, an example that I, I use of I, I, I use here in the in the on this point in the documentaries, I say, well, you can imagine, for for example, uh, this idea of no one being left behind. That's the essence of the idea, right? You can imagine uh, that you are a, a military unit somewhere, and one of your members has become injured, uh, and you're faced with a choice, you're, and you're forced to retreat. Uh, do you risk your own lives by carrying your wounded member out, or do you leave the, the poor guy behind and, and run away, um, and, and thus facilitate your own escape? Uh, for John Rawls, what he's going to say in that situation is, you have to bring 
the least advantaged person with you, even if it means risking your own lives. Now, that's kind of a dramatic example, but that, that's exactly the way the theory spills out on the economic side. Uh, that is, we, we can't allow individuals to be successful unless that success um, doesn't trickle down but radiates over the most poor members of our society. And, and so that makes sense theoretically, right? I mean, almost all of us intuitively, I think, respond positively to that, positively to that idea that, well, we're not going to leave the weakest behind. We're going to wait for that person, right? If, if it means waiting physically or if it means waiting economically, yes, we're going to do that. Um, the problem with this theory comes, though, uh, it, the reality is that this can convert into kind of a, a dictatorship of the least advantaged or the poverty stricken. And the example that I use in the documentary is, is a heroin addict. What do you do? If you have someone who is the, the least advantaged and who, in a certain sense, is set upon being the least advantaged, right, who is gobbling up the resources of society, um, within Rawls' system, someone like Bill Gates is not allowed to create Microsoft Windows, right, which makes him extraordinarily wealthy, until he can show us how Microsoft Windows is going to make the life of the heroin junkie better, um, and I'm not, I'm not sure it will. So the, the problem on, on this, the problem of serving equality in this sense with the difference principle is that we have this, as I call it in the, the documentary, kind of dictatorship of the least advantaged. Um, that the, the amount to which the rest of us are held back for that one person um, is, is significant. So it, it, it's one of these kinds of situations where in the abstract, we're all, everyone supports the difference principle in the abstract. But in the concrete world, it's not clear that it will be that it will work in a satisfactory way, though it might work, and it's something you could experiment with. I, I would uh, I would love to have a very long response to that at this moment, but unfortunately, we are just about out of time. I want to encourage everyone to tune in to the Extramad extended portion of this interview, which can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and on our website. I'm hoppingmad.com. Uh, right now, K-Grow in the Morning is coming up here on Netroots Radio. Stay with us. Welcome back to Hopping Mad. When we left off, we were talking about a concept called the dictatorship of the least advantage. And for the sake of this argument, imagine a world where we have a perfect social uh, welfare system, where there's uh, drug treatment facilities that anyone can go to regardless of wealth, where Anyone who is in uh, a situation of addiction can go and go to drug treatment and end up with a job and a much happier life and, and all of that. But society is held back uh, under the, uh, uh, the difference principle by someone who refuses to cooperate with that process, someone who is the ideal or perfect heroin addict using philosophical language. And my question then, James, is, is shouldn't uh, the freedom side then be brought into this debate and say, well, that's this guy's choice. Right. I, I, th I think that's a, that's a perfect response. Um, and I think that many people are sympathetic with that. Uh, but what happens then is, um, if we're going to accept, if we're going to respect and recognize that this person has a right to bury him or herself in his or her own sorrows, uh, then when we look on the other side, and we look at someone like, say, Bill Gates, who has accumulated uh, so much money uh, that it literally is not worth his time uh, to bend over and pick up a $20 bill off the floor. Right? Then we look on that side, it seems like in order to be consistent, uh, we're going to have to say, 
to Bill Gates, well, just like the heroin junkies made his or her choices, we're going to live with it. You, Bill Gates, you've made your choices, and we're going to live with that too. And what that means in uh, in reality is that we're no longer we're no longer able to go to Bill Gates and say, look, you have a lot more money than everybody else, so we're going to ask you to pay taxes or higher taxes than anybody else to balance things out. Uh, that's no more justified. Or that would be a form of coercion, right? It's no more justified to say that to Bill Gates because he's just expressing his own free choices in the world when he accumulates this money. It's no more justified to say that to Bill Gates than it is to say to the heroin junkie, you've got to stop using heroin. If we're going to let people do the kinds of things that they want to do and follow their own destiny and create an identity for themselves, whether it's a heroin junkie or a wealthy Microsoft producer, if we're going to allow that, then it seems like to be consistent, we need to allow it on both sides. So as soon as we say to the heroin junkie, you're good to go, do what you like, it becomes very difficult to limit wealth inequality generally, because the same goes for Bill Gates and what he likes to do, let's just say, is make extraordinary amounts of money. It is, to take this for a minute to the real world and to sort of the current political discussion, immigration is a hot topic both here in the States and in the British referendum. And I really think that an awful lot of what goes around in the immigration debate comes from an emotional sense that people have, either a sense of abundance or a sense of scarcity. And that is, they have those emotions regardless of facts. In other words, economists for the most part will generally agree that immigration is good for an economy, that immigration not only grows an economy, but that it, it lifts everybody up along with it, that it, it drives activity into an economy. So it isn't the addition of people that makes the difference, it is this sense of scarcity. And I just wondered, doesn't that fit right in with this freedom versus um, equality balance? I think it, it, it fits. It might, I think there's something to be said on that front, and I think that also um, there might be even a better, a more coherent fit um, on the, uh, within the dynamic of of freedom ethics or freedom philosophy uh, in the in the following sense, um, what we've sort of said at a, a few points or touched down at a few points now uh, is this idea that one of the things that's interesting about the dynamic of freedom, the basic dynamic of freedom, uh, which uh, George Bataille, a French philosopher from the uh, middle 20th century, uh, called an an excess economy, um, the basic dynamic there uh, is that there can be a kind of overproduction of something which is so extreme. Um, that it ends up uh, killing itself, uh, wiping itself out. So we use the example of cigarettes. You s the desire for cigarettes uh, grows and grows to the point where it's that desire for cigarettes itself that destroys your ability to smoke cigarettes and therefore destroys the desire to smoke cigarettes. Or we've talked about in the case of Mexico how this the freedom which allows this wonderful architecture uh, and individuals to, to create things that they could never create in New York City or elsewhere, uh, perhaps. And that same freedom also... Uh, in, in in certain ways, wipes out freedom for a very large percent of the po uh, percentage of the population. Um, so, if that is an excess economy, or that dynamic is what we call an excess economy, whether we're talking about money or freedom or what have you, um, I think then in that case, um, 
it might be kind of interesting to look at some of these immigration questions in, in, in that way and say, well, within a free society, uh, to what extent is it true or to, to what degree could we say that it's the freedom, the, the values of the free society itself, the openness to the outside and the openness to new ideas, et cetera, which is choking itself off um, in some of these cases where the those who are the indigenous people of the of the local culture, whether it's an American citizen or British citizen or what have you, right? Um, whether uh, it is that, in some sense, it is the strength of their fortitude, or the strength of their belief in their own values of their own culture, which forces them to not allow outsiders to enter. And whether or not this is a case where one might want to analyze, might want to say, this is a case where it's the openness of the society itself which is turning back and choking itself in the same way that cigarettes lead to the, the choker, lead to the choking of the, the smoker. Um, I think that that might be a line that you could investigate if you if you wanted to use some of the ideas that we've developed in the documentary on that issue. Getting how do you get how do you go about getting people on the same page in this conversation. In other words, it you're right. People do really talk past each other such a huge percentage of the time in this area. How, how do you, what do you do personally to try to get people speaking about things from the same um, plane so that they can have an actual discussion, an actual meeting of the minds, whether they agree or not, at least they're having an actual discussion. How do you get there? Right, well, then that, I think that goes back to kind of what we talked about at the start of the show and this, this notion that with respect to wealth and equality, what we're trying to do is, is we're going to say, well, let's talk about that in terms of freedom and equality. Why is that? Well, it's because almost nobody comes into the discussion with a doctrinaire position on freedom or equality. Almost all of us think equality, yeah, sounds pretty good. Freedom, yeah, that's a good thing too, right? Uh, so, so, so people don't start out uh, against each other. So I think that in general, the, the answer to these kinds of questions is it's always to find a different way to approach, to approach a question. It doesn't matter what the question is. It's always to find an unexplored or undeveloped way of, or a fresh way, let's say, of thinking about the issue, whether it's inequality or immigration or what have you. Why? Because that allows people to come at these conversations without those pre- Prejudgments or prejudice, right? That we're stuck with the kind of bias um, that sometimes make these makes these discussions so difficult. That's I think that's the way uh, that's the response I would have there. It's, it's not important to find it's not important to fix the ways we have of speaking about things. It's more important to find different ways of speaking about fresh ways of thinking about the same thing. Okay, that makes sense to me. To to take us then back to to the uh, from the real world to the, the world of ideals and philosophies and, and stuff like that. And, uh, and, and look at my favorite philosophy, which you discuss in the, uh, in, in the documentary, which is, which is utility. And I've loved utilitarianism ever since I uh, picked up Jeremy Bentham's principles of morals and legislation as, as a kid and really struggled with it as a 14 year old, trying to figure out what it meant. Um, and so utilitarianism just to set the stage for the discussion is the idea that, that we should strive to create the greatest good for the greatest number of people, good happiness, depending on who's doing the defining of that, of that word. And so the the utilitarian argument when it comes to economics would be, you have people who have more houses than they can live in, more food than they can eat, 
more cars than they can drive. And you have people who lack those things. So those folks have so much stuff that they wouldn't notice if they owned a few less cars or had less food, even though they still have more food than they could eat, and that people who were starving would then be able to eat. The idea of utility is is these folks have way more than they know what to do with, so we'll make sure that, that those folks are able to fund the people who literally are struggling to survive. And you maximize happiness through the alleviation of suffering. And then if someone is, is, is like our, our, our perfect heroin addict, is choosing to go off and, and make decisions, that's his choice, and, and he has found his own peculiar kind of happiness there. Right, and then I would um, just add one to that very nice summary of what the how a utilitarian would approach this. Um, I would add one apparently technical point, but in fact, I think it's quite important. One of the significant aspects of the utilitarian ethical framework uh, is that the proponent of the utilitarianism uh, stresses anonymity. That is, uh, the utilitarian doesn't care who's happy as long as the maximum happiness for society overall is achieved. So the reason people take up this position as a response to the problem we saw with roles is because the utilitarian is able to say coherently, justifiably, look, if there is this heroin junkie out there who wants to wallow in sadness and depression and uh, this, is the, this, this is the way that this person is decided to go and we can't do anything about it, the utilitarian is free to say, well, goodbye. You've made that choice, off you go. What I'm interested in as a utilitarian is maximizing happiness for everyone. So the utilitarian, in a sense, is freed from this dictatorship of the maximum impoverished, right? And free, therefore, to go, sort of as you admirably put it, to say, look, let's look at most of society most of the time. And in those cases, yes, it makes perfect sense to take away, redistribute, take away, that's the language you want to use, um, resources or wealth from some people uh, and give it to those who have less. Well, why is that? Well, that's the, the doctrine of marginal utility is important here, right? That's the idea that um, if you have uh, six bottles of water and six thirsty people, uh, you will generate more happiness if every one of those six people drinks one bottle of water than you would if one person drank all six. And so if, if you, what you want to do is maximize happiness, and that's all that matters, then you will not hesitate to take away, even if I'm the owner of the six water bottles, you will not hesitate to take away five of them and give them to those other five people who are thirsty. Um, so that's the, the positive step. That's what people like about utilitarianism and how it fits uh, into this debate. What people don't like about utilitarianism is that uh, just like you're free to take away from someone who is wealthy, so too you're free to take away from someone who is poverty-stricken or just a random person, again, underneath the same logic. Um, and there's a, this is a, a movie from kind of the distant past, but it, it happens to kind of fit right into this um, debate. Uh, it, the movie has the Gene Hackman, and he is a, he's portrayed as a somewhat evil doctor, and what he's doing is he's kidnapping um, uh, homeless uh, individuals and unbalanced individuals, the, the poorest of the poor in society, is kidnapping them and taking them to his secret workshop where he is doing medical investigations and research to try to cure some uh, horrible disease. Um, now, the problem that the utilitarian faces is, you know, there might not be anything wrong with that. 
um, if he is confident that he, this work he's doing can lead to the solving, the curing of this disease, then by the utilitarian logic, the same logic that we use to say that we are going to take away from the wealthiest to create more happiness for society, that same logic can also work in this, this other case, where we say we're going to take away even the lives of, those, of this group of people who happen to be quite poor. Why? Because these experiments will yield greater happiness overall for all of society if the disease is cured. And then again, to finalize this point, then of course it's not just the wealthy and the poorest of the poor that need to worry, it's you and I too. right? Because if the utilitarian can show that for whatever reason, sacrificing, let's say, I'll take myself as the example here, for whatever reason, sacrificing the life of James Brousseau is going to create happiness for everyone else. Um, there's a joke I could, we could put in here, but we won't do that. <laughs> for whatever reason, sacrificing my life would make everyone else's life better. And then by the same reasoning, that led us to redistribute the water bottles, well, we're stuck doing that too. So there is this kind of peril in utilitarianism as well, which is a, a radical unfairness. Um, that is, if, if, if the society can be bettered uh, through the sacrifice of one or very few people, there's no hesitation on the part of the utilitarian. Well, but I think utilitarians would argue, and I, I see this argument, especially yeah. in sort of the, the crime and, and yeah. the punishment section mm-hmm. of, of Bentham, is that injustice creates more unhappiness overall than right. uh, than you know having justice? And so that's when we get into rule utilitarianism. You have a constitution where you're not allowed to take people's lives away. You have the Hippocratic Oath, which says do no harm in medicine. You have these rules that you have to follow, which provide the space in which you're allowed to operate uh, under utility. So you can't take away someone's life without a legal process, and that they would have to have committed a crime. You can't have uh, compulsory organ donation. And, and the main reason for that is, let, let's say, let's use this, this one thing that you kind of alluded to in the documentary, this idea that, you know, uh, when people don't have the means, then they get killed by society and their organs are compulsorily donated to save other lives. The, the problem with that from a utility mm-hmm. perspective is, okay, you get in a car accident, you wake up, and the state tells you, hi, uh, we're a utilitarian state that has just murdered someone to provide you with a liver that yeah. is uh, replacing the one you lost in a car wreck. Uh, I hope you enjoy the, your murder organs. Good luck sleeping tonight. There's this creeping horror that would go through the right. rest of society. And, and you know, it's, it, it, it's the sort of thing that, that, that would create more pain overall because I think one of the things utilitarianism doesn't talk about as humans, we're empathetic. We're capable of feeling the pain mm-hmm. of others. So the pain that we cause one person can ripple throughout the whole of society in a way that is going to create much more pain than happiness. So while that is in some ways logically consistent, I always felt that attack on utilitarianism is an oversimplification and really undermines the way in which human beings feel empathy. Empathy exists, and that means that the unhappiness of a few becomes the unhappiness of many because we feel for those people. Right, but then, but then the response is uh, the response that the that a hardcore. By the way, I'm not a hardcore utilitarian, uh, but, I will, but, but, but I will adopt that. Um, I will adopt that uh, that mask for for the moment. And what the hardcore utilitarian is going to say, and this is. Um, I want to come back also on your distinction between act and rule utilitarianism, which I will in a moment. But going straight to the, my 
my hardest response, if I'm a defender of utilitarianism, is I say, well, I solve that problem about the organ sacrifices very simply. I lie. Right? I don't tell the patient that's where the organs came from. In fact, I'm going to create a kind of star chamber government which is going to be up there, and they're going to be in charge of creating lies which are beneficial for our society. Those lies would include not telling people that certain others are being sacrificed so that they can be happier. The utilitarian is going to go for that if, if you can show that that kind of mis that, that that kind of societal structure, one based upon lies, does in fact create more happiness than a society based fully upon truth. In fact, this is one of the the, the core ideas of utilitarianism, um, and it stands against, say, the ethics of Kant. Right? The ethics of Kant is look, truth is important, honesty is important. The utilitarian stance against this is precisely the truth and honesty are, are not important. What's important is happiness. And if that means that we are going to have to lie to the population, then that's what we will do. Um, so, now, I'm not promoting that, but I'm noting that if you're going to stay true to the theory, and the theory is that we'll do what's necessary, the ends justify the means, we'll do what's necessary to maximize social happiness, then that's the way we respond to that very good point you made. Um, we don't respond by stopping the organ donations or the organ theft, we respond instead by lying about it. Um, so, and you, you take that as you will, and we can go back and forth about that. I, I uh, would but, argue that that's yeah. not possible, but we can move on. Right, and then, and then we get back to the problem, <laughs> the problem that I have, is that I, what's possible and not possible rarely enters into my thought. <laughs> I yeah. just kind of imagine theoretically, ideally things. Uh, but then I think it's also, it's also worth very quickly... You actually had two responses to the utilitarian position that we presented in the documentary. Uh, the one was um, that, well, people are going to be psychologically unhappy if they find out their organs are stolen. And then I said, well, my response to that is we're just going to lie to them. Uh, the second response that you had was, well, there's two kinds of utilitarianism. The first is the one that is kind of the mainstream, and that's the one I'm talking about now, which is act utilitarianism. And that means that whenever you're faced with a situation, you do that thing which creates the maximum happiness overall. But there's also this other utilitarianism, and a very good point you make, rule utilitarianism, where what we try and do is instead of taking things as, in terms of circumstance, every action, we say, let's set up one single set of rules which we think will, in fact, create the most happiness overall. And then we will live by those rules. Um, now, the response, well, we can go back and forth, but, but that's a different kind of response. And I think that you're probably resisting the um, kind of the vision I have of people stealing organs, I think you're going to have more luck resisting that vision with your move toward rule utilitarianism than you will with the, the empathy argument, I think. That's my suspicion. But I could be wrong about that. Who knows? I, I would say the empathy argument is applies to most of the theoretical issues where we are creating pain in order to maximize pleasure. I, I don't think that pain logically under under the utilitarian model does actually maximize pleasure that, think, and, and then you right. say that's right. lie about it and and yeah. that that seems to be taking it to a rather absurd extreme in utilitarianism i don't and also that's where we get to questions of but but i do think that that uh and i think that that was what bentham was doing i think bentham is the original rule utilitarianism he's talking about legislation He's talking right. about crime and punishment. Right. I think I think utility is best understood as as a model for legislation and for social decisions. Uh, yep. In addition to being ethical, it's about how do we make legislation ethical. That's correct because his book was principles of morals and legislation, or morals and politics, or something. So you're definitely right about that that move. Yes. 
but I think, but as I say, I think that that's a, a slightly separate debate. I think that, that yeah. the more interesting debate for wealth inequality in this particular case is that one, that great point you're making about how, well, there's this empathy problem, and then how you can respond to that and what that entails. It's, it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting intellectual exercise. Yeah, yeah. You, you had a thought experiment you talked about at the very beginning on the freedom side that you wanted to take us through. Sure, right. Uh, the, the, um, for those people who want to uh, start from equality, um, the, the way they do generally is with this thought about the perfect society. We see it doesn't work, and then there's experimentation, and we're, we're kind of doing that in this discussion, experiment with different ways of thinking about how equality can work and how it might not work, etc. Um, but then on the other side, uh, that the famous the famous beginning point for the, the freedom ethics comes from a, a guy named uh, Robert Nadzik, and uh, his example involves um, Will Chamberlain. And he says, "Okay, well, let's imagine." And this he wrote this thought experiment as a direct response to the Rawls's difference principle. Uh, what Nadzik said is, "Okay, let's imagine a society where um, everyone is perfectly equally wealthy again." So we'll start from that perfect point. And I would just uh, say. That you're, you're already giving out the baby with the bathwater if you let someone argue from a point where we already have wealth equality. Yeah. That's, that's the entire problem we're trying to address. But I'll leave that alone and let's continue the thought experiment. Right, right. And so, we'll, so we'll see where it goes. So we'll start out from that. But, but one thing that what Nazik says is if, if we have perfect equality, at least one thing we can be sure of is that those people who promote perfect equality are not going to complain at the start. Um, and then the next step is uh, in this world, there's a basketball player who I guess we would call him now Stephen Curry or LeBron James, but back then it was um, uh, Will Chamberlain. Uh, and, and we imagine a situation where uh, Will Chamberlain decides, you know what, I'm going to quit basketball unless uh, every game that I play, uh, the fans, besides buying a ticket, they also drop into a bucket a $5 bill, uh, and that money goes straight to me. Why, Will Chamberlain says? The reason that's true reason I want that, Will Chamberlain says, is because I know that people are coming to really watch me play. I'm the best player here. And he was the best player at his time, right? He was right. the reason people went to, to, to watch people play. And so, uh, then he said, and, and that's just the way it's going to be. I'm not going to force anybody to come to my games. I'm not going to force anybody to play to play basketball who doesn't want to play basketball. Um, if you don't want me to continue playing, I won't, etc. I'm just saying those are the conditions under which I will play. Um, and then, well, what would happen? Well, in the thought experiment, what would happen, we assume, probably is what would happen in society. And that is um, that people would say, yeah, okay. Some season ticket holders would say, yeah, I don't like this Will Chamberlain character anymore. I'm going to quit. But we know the reality is that people will pay more money to see the better athletes and teams and so on. And so probably people would drop a little extra money in the pot, and then he would end up uh, very wealthy. Now, what Nazik says there is he says, okay, um, if we have a situation where started where everyone was happy, there were no ethical complaints from the equality people, uh, and now we have a situation where Will Chamberlain is extraordinarily wealthy, is there any step in this move from the beginning to where Will Chamberlain is at now where the equality advocates can reasonably make an ethical objection? And Nazik says, no, there is not. Uh, why? Because no one was coerced or forced to do anything. That's classic straight freedom ethics, right? Um, if no one is coerced to do anything, then there's no objection to what was done. So, Nazik says, um, there is no legitimate claim that can be made against wealth inequality in society. Um, and then that's where the thought experiment sort of ends. Uh, and then where you go from there is you say, okay, well, that's where we're at. 
um, then how is it, is there any way that we can uh, resist wealth inequality in society if we want to buy that first argument, that is, we want to adhere to a freedom ethics? And then as we've talked a little bit about here and there, we've dotted on it, uh, the way you do make the case against inequality is by saying that inequality is limiting or impeding freedom. And that case is just really very different than the a case the equality uh, camp <laughs> makes, right? The equality camp says, what's wrong with inequality is inequality. We want more equality. The freedom camp says, what's wrong with inequality is nothing. However, in this case, because we have so much inequality is uh, impeding freedom, therefore we're against inequality. If I could jump in, I always had an answer to that, to that yeah. Uh, yeah. which was, well, that's totally fine, but uh, he's using the U.S. dollar, which is collectively owned by all of us. So right. if he wants to continue to use the U.S. dollar, if he wants to choose to use dollars, then uh, he'll agree to pay a higher tax bracket. He, ha he has a choice whether or not he wants to use U.S. dollars, but if he wants to collect, to choose to collect that many U.S. dollars, uh, then, then he's free to also pay higher taxes on them as well, <laughs> because we own the dollar, and yeah. under the conditions uh, which we will allow him to use the dollar we collectively own, those conditions are taxes. No coercion at all. Yeah, I Everyone's think, happy. I, I think you can do that. I think he would probably respond, well, then you've got to drop little trinkets of gold into my pot or something. But yes, you could, you could come back that way. Though I, I do think that you could find some, I think that, as I say, yes, you could respond by saying, well, okay, then we need to drop trinkets of gold or very small diamonds into the pot to come watch me, watch me play. Um, yeah, but... You know, but I, 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 I'm, I'm right now, I'm kind of, this happens from time to time, I'm, uh, I, I, you do hear a thought like that, which it, it, I had not heard that thought before, and I'm struggling a little bit to see how I want to respond to that. And I'm not sure. Um, it, it does seem right for me to say that, uh, well, you can just shift the currency. But the, the deeper question you're asking is to what extent do we have responsibilities to others because we're, we have chosen to enter into a kind of social contract with them? Um, and I think that what Nazik would say is that the, the, the fundamental social contract, that is the fact that we use the dollar, uh, he would say that, look, that is also voluntary, that Will Chamberlain might, that Will Chamberlain might say, I'm not going to use dollars to trade anymore, I'm going to go into Bitcoin and that's the way it's going to be. Um, but all, all of those things, I think that he would say, uh, are voluntary and individualistic as opposed to collective. So the dollar, so he would, so now, 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 now I understand what he would say. Yes, he would, he would respond to you this way. Uh, he would say that, no, your, your premise is fundamentally wrong. Um, the dollar is not an expression of our collective or shared reality. Instead, the dollar is something that each of us as individuals decides to use in a system of exchange. And it could be that tomorrow we'll decide to use something else, Bitcoin or gold or something like that. Now, that may be right or may be wrong, but that, that's the response. The response would be to, to come back against your premise and say, no, the dollar does not express a collectivity, and therefore the collective cannot make this case against Will Chamberlain. I think that's what he would say. The, as the person who's forever talking about how currency is used, the, <laughs> yeah, now you're in my ballpark. <laughs> okay, so the thing about the dollar is that the only thing that is the soci the societal collective about that dollar is that Mr. Chamberlain must pay his taxes in that dollar. He can trade in anything else he wants for everything else he buys and sells, but he must pay taxes in that dollar. So... That's it is the um, requirement of taxes that drives any currency. 
and, and in the case of sovereign currency, it is, uh, and the sovereign fiat currency in particular, it is taxes don't even actually pay for anything. Taxes are simply a way of gating the economy. So the point of the fiscal policy that surrounds the tax level that Mr. Chamberlain is paying has to do with a societal decision that Congress has made, but it isn't actually related to the dollar. The dollar is um, simply the coinage by which taxes are paid. Right, and the expression nothing else. of the taxes. Yeah. yeah. Um, though we would say that uh, just as I was fairly extreme when I was defending the uh, utilitarian and the organ harvesting, so to speak, I will be fairly extreme here too. And I will say, uh, well, I never said that you would could do taxes. I'm not so sure I want to go there either. I'm not so sure I want to allow any taxes. Now, I may voluntarily pay taxes, volunteer, excuse me, voluntarily pay taxes because I see that that's paying for police officers and, and so on, and that's good for me. Uh, but there, the idea that I am obliged to pay taxes, I resist that. Uh, taxes are things that I decide individually to give in. And again, it's, it's a different way of, of expressing the point I made previously. Um, taxes are not something that are, that are imposed upon me. They're not a source of coercion. Instead, they're something I decide to do today, and I might not decide to do it tomorrow. And, there's, and if I decide not to do it tomorrow, then you, you other members of society out there, let's say I'm Bill Chamberlain, you other members of society, there's no ethical ground upon which you can stand to take away that money that I have without violating the ethics of freedom. Um, so that's where someone who goes, goes for freedom would come back against that, um, that form of the argument, which is, I think it's a different form of the argument that there's a collective, the collective can impose responsibilities upon the individual. Uh, those who promote the freedom ethics say, no, there is no, there are, the collective cannot impose responsibilities. The only responsibilities are imposed by freedom itself. And those freedoms are, that those responsibilities are real. When you go to Mexico and you see where you have this abundant freedom, and you see how that has had the effect of destroying freedom so widely in society, it's a real force. Saying that freedom can stop, can impede Freedom is a real thing, and saying that freedom can work, that the devotion to freedom can work against wealth and equality, that, there's a real argument that can be made there. Um, it's, not, it's not just a pure theoretical argument. Well, um, but it does require a complete change in, in the premises. We don't want to talk about the collective. It's all individual choice now. Okay, well, let's explore that, because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm someone who would start arguing social contract at this point. That's my yeah. main go-to when I, when I run into the freedom argument that, you know, if what you're, I, I end up arguing that essentially property is theft if you are arguing from that framework. That hasn't worked in arguments against libertarians because they totally reject every premise I make and I totally <laughs> reject every premise they make. So <laughs> let's figure out how, how to argue here within the freedom model. How does freedom become destructive to itself? Can you lay that out uh, with some of the other thought experiments uh, that were more advanced in your video? Well, I, I think you could. I think that we can see this again. Again, it seems to me that Mexico is a, a very good, a very good choice. But I think it's also true. I think you can see it in our society too that there is a very similar dynamic. Um, I live, as it happens, I live literally a block from from Wall Street, um, and so I, I see that I'm with my my Wall Street comrades every every day and night. Um, I think that you can make the case that uh, for things like, let's say, buying a home, um, that the Wall Street finance industry, um, which on one hand um, 
when it's functioning properly, in fact, does increase individual freedom by moving money around in ways that facilitates the, the purchase of, of a home for an individual. That's real freedom for a person when they, he or she could buy a home. Um, and Wall Street banking does serve that interest. However, uh, when that freedom that those bankers have to manipulate and move money, when it gets out of control, that freedom, in a certain sense, disallows the buying of home. And that's what we saw after 2006, right? When the, the housing, the mortgage collapsed, et cetera, uh, this extensive system that we had created to allow individuals to pursue their own destiny and the, the homes that they purchased, that whole thing collapsed. And it collapsed, why? Be, not because someone dragged the dollar out of the economy or something. No, because the freedom of the Wall Street bankers, their own... Uh, liberal, not in the sense of politics, but liberal in the sense of freedom, their own liberal actions and decisions destroyed the the, the entire, to a certain extent, destroyed the system that uh, had made them and allowed them to become wealthy. So I think that would be another example. Just the mortgage finance breakdown would be an example of the place where freedom worked against itself. And therefore, you could say, to wrap this up, therefore, you could say, look, that's the justification for strapping certain times or certain kinds of regulations upon this industry. The justification is not the equality justification. The justification is not the fact that this industry is, cre- is not allowing uh, everyone to, to get homes. Instead, the argument is that this industry is destroying the very freedom that it itself um, promotes, and therefore we're going to strap the regulations on it. So you get to the same end, but by a different route, perhaps. Mm. Mm. That's fascinating to me and something I'm going to have to consider a lot more. And that's one of the important things of, of, about what you're doing is helping us hear the other side as opposed to just immediately responding with well, but the social contract is real. Well, I never signed a social contract and all those other sorts of arguments you end up with, with value autonomy to a rather extreme degree. Well, right, and then, the, and then to sort of be the, the in a certain sense, a devil's advocate here. I mean, it'd be interesting. You might even want to say that, look, if you want to enforce equality in society, I wonder if it's possible, perhaps, it's possible that the best route to that is not through the ethics of equality, but instead it's through the ethics of freedom. Perhaps the strongest argument against inequality is precisely that it's destroying freedom itself. It's not that it's going against equality. I'm not sure, but it's an interesting possibility. It allows people to see the issue in a very different way. And so you could make an argument then that uh, it, wealth inequality or, or a basic income is actually about freedom of choice, which is an argument that I made uh, in in a previous video, video on, on the housing prices. Well, I think that that's I'm, – I'm glad you brought that up because that's an, that's an, uh, an issue that I am very, very interested in. Uh, and when I read about – um, when I read commentary about that, because this is, of course, still is kind of a fringe idea, this notion of a negative tax or a, a, a helicopter money, they sometimes call it. Um, I think that there's a lot of instability uh, within the people who talk about this, a lot of instability about whether or not this is a sort of a democratic idea, a Republican idea, is it a right-wing idea, left What kind of idea is this exactly? So it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting topic. Um, and I think that it's a sufficiently nebulous and unformed um, that it allows people, this is the kind of thing that people could talk about without already having determined before the discussion starts where they're going. And uh, so I'm, I'm tuned into that, but I have not myself formed a position yet, but I think it's a very interesting issue and one where people can, can interact in very constructive and positive ways, I believe. Have you uh, heard the arguments on both sides of the current Swiss debate on 
basic in income guarantee? I, I know that it was rejected. Um, right. The, uh, <laughs> the, the Swiss are, I happen to have some experience with the, the Swiss are special peoples. Uh, yeah. so I'm not sure exactly. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure exactly what uh, how transferable that experience is, uh, but I, I I am yeah I, I I I'm I'm not prepared to to speak reasonably to say things on that quite yet. Though I was like I am preparing myself, but I'm not there yet. The it's conversation the conversation was interesting, and I also followed it when they were talking about uh, job guarantee programs to help drive the Greek economy, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I think. Uh, Marvin Minsky and uh, there's been good work on this out of the modern monetary theory community and mm-hmm. from uh, Marvin Minsky and it's worth um, it's worth touching base on. Well, what do you understand as being sort of the basic? Is it possible for from your understanding to connect that to uh, let's say that the conflict between equality and freedom, or is that those categories not work so well for the basic income? Basically, the, uh, the argument behind a job guarantee program is that, frankly, people want to work. People want to contribute to society. When you um, poll, when they poll or survey people who are receiving um, societal benefits, whether it is unemployment or, um, you know, a ver- you know any of a variety of the social safety net benefits when you poll them the far greater majority of them those who are able to work want to work and in fact the um, the desire to work is in their top three the top three things that they want in other words it comes before wanting to own a house it yeah. co- you know it comes it's way up in their priority list and it isn't it isn't just the drive for money. It is. It has to do with self-esteem. It has to do with the way people see themselves. So, a job guarantee program isn't helicopter money. It is. It is um, work that is valuable in society. And there are a lot of ways in which modern monetary theory talks about it in terms of economics. But the social side of it, which is really what we're talking about here, is that it allows people to. Um, contribute to society in a way that they um, desire, in a way that they succeed in their own eyes. And to me, that is a freedom argument. Yeah. And, and, and then I would just just quickly ask, so let's say that uh, I'm one of these uh, people who was thinking about I have no job. I'm thinking about signing up for it, but then I decide, you know what, I'm not going to go to work. Do I still get the check or not? The social, you know, I, the yeah, the unemployment check, or well, the, the I guess I'm asking is this, is this a form? I guess I want to get underneath and just ask quickly: is this a form of guaranteed income? And it's nice if you go to work, or is it a form of guaranteed work but no guaranteed income? You only get the income if you go to work. No, the, you would still be eligible for benefits, but right. if you want to work there's a job and you would then make, you could yeah yeah and you would make yeah. more working than you would receiving the benefits uh, right um, right so it, it seems to me then there I just it just seems to me that there are two very different things going on there one is that that basic is 
it just seems to me, and I, I wish that I was further along in my thoughts about this because I'm so interested in it, uh, but it just seems to me that there's something fundamentally different about receiving a check in the mail every week, period, and that's it, no matter what you do, and the entire set of discussions that have to do with working and the value of work and, um, and receiving a greater or lesser amount of money for a certain job and so on. Um, I guess I, 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 as a philosopher, I like, I'm very drawn to the purity, the idea that everyone gets a check. What does that mean? Why are we doing that? What, how, how is that justified? Those are the kinds of questions that I, I'm interested in. But I have no answers. So I, I can't contribute to, to your uh, uh, subject. You might want to read work by Pavlina Cherneva. Mm-hmm. And um, she's done some extraordinary work on job guarantee programs. Really, really fascinating, both philosophical work and really applied economics and in other words applied to specific economic situations in particular Greece and just for uh, your listeners also and also for me could you just spell that last name the oh chi- man or, no, no, or, uh, <laughs> hang on let me, I can get that information I just have to go to or maybe website. next week you could put it up or something yes yeah, it, it does have that sound of a name that someone could spend three hours trying to google it and not get find the, it on yes <laughs> Okay, P-A-V-L-I-N-A, Cherneva, T-C-H-E-R-N-E-V-A. And if you go to the website New Economic Perspectives and look in the column down the right-hand side under Articles Written By, you'll see Pavlina's name there, and you can click on it, and her a lot of her work will come up. Her work is at other places on the web, so it's worth Googling her. You can get more detailed and some deeper papers and things yeah. by Googling her. But um, she she's done extraordinary work in this field, and, and it's well worth reading what she has to say. Yeah, that T at the beginning would have thrown me off for sure. I think we just saved a lot of people a lot of time by yeah. <laughs> you know, the T there. Almost definitely. Well... Is there anything else that we haven't discussed that you think we ought to say before we bring things to a close? I think that that uh, capture, I think we've, you, uh, the, you guys have done a very good job of helping us explore the, uh, the, the main issues in the documentary. And I think that, as I said, that the documentary attempts to take a fairly straightforward approach to the traditional views. Uh, and the philosophy and ethics about wealth and equality. And so I think that I think that we've covered the ground well and given a good introduction for people who might want to go uh, look at the documentary themselves. And uh, you're well, the website for this, correct me if I'm wrong, is, is uh, wealthinequalityworkshop.org? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Wealthinequalityworkshop.org. It's a really interesting documentary that runs through uh, these, ar- these arguments in a, in a comprehensible way. Uh, James, it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed having this conversation. Fascinating. Uh, yes, I'm very glad, very glad you're able to have me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Well, folks, you've been listening to Hopping Mad. Thank you for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.